0: Have a copy of God's Word, and I pray that you do. Go ahead and turn with me to the. We're making our way through 2 Samuel. We have now reached chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we are going to come face to face with, some, with, uh, with uh, something very interesting. I think some very interesting realities here. Uh, as we approach God's Word, uh, we want to do so with humility and grace we want to uh, that is necessary we want to uh, come acknowledging God's sovereign uh, rule and reign over us as his people and so we do that by submitting and surrendering to the word of God and so this morning what i would like you to do if you have found second samuel chapter 8 and you're physically able to do so we'll read the whole chapter all 18 verses uh, and i am going to ask that you would Physically stand with us one final time as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. Second Samuel chapter eight, beginning in verse one, hear the word of the Lord that is given to you and to I this morning. And after this it came to pass that David struck the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Uh, Out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants, and they brought gifts. David struck also Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as went as he went to recover his border at the river of the Euphrates And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen. And David uh, <coughs> hamstrung all of the chariot horses, but reserved of them for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to uh, came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David slew all. Of the Asir, of the Syrians, two and twenty thousand men, then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts and the Lord preserved David wherever he went and David took the shields of gold that were on the servants that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Beta and from uh, Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, king of King David, took exceedingly much brass. When Toi came of ha- King of Hamath heard that David had struck all the hosts of Hadadezer, then Toi sent to Joram son, his son to King David to salute him. And well, that's to greet him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and, sh- and struck him for Hadadezer had war with toy. And Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations, which he subdued. Of Syria and of Moab, of the children of Ammon, of the Philistines, of Amalek, and of the and of the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David got him a name when he returned from striking or killing the the Syrians in the valley of Salt, being eighteen thousand men. And he put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. Put he garrisons in. All they of Edom became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David reigned over all of Israel, and David executed judgment and justice to all his people." And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was of the host, that's of the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub. And Ahimelech, the son of uh, Abiathar, were the priests. And Saraiah was the scribe. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Peleothites. And David's sons were chief rulers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that we see, even in the text this morning, we pray for your grace, we pray for your wisdom, we pray for the power of your spirit to enable us to guide us in your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen and amen. Thank you, you can be seated. Think about all the joyous songs that we sing. Think of all the, all the songs that are in our, our hymnal, right? Think of all the, the joyful songs that we sing as Christians about the victory of God. Let me give you a couple of examples, if, if, if you will. The first example that I just simply want to point you to is uh, hail uh, to the Lord's anointed uh, or joy to the world, right? Uh, And and others, right? So um, in the song, Hail to the Lord's anointed, we sing hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captives free, to take away transgression and to rule in equity uh, we may even think of, of other songs. We may, we may actually think of Joy to the World as being a Christmas song. Many people do, but in actuality, it's not a Christmas song. It's a song of the victory of God over his enemies. It's a song of God's great victory over those that have opposed and will oppose him. It is God's great work in Christ and at Calvary and and his coming kingdom that will ultimately overcome once and for all that we sing of. And so this morning, in that vein, what I want to do is I want to point us in this passage to the victory of that David, that God gives to David, the victories that God gives to David, because ultimately we will see that this vi- these victories point us to the greater victor, the one who is David's greater son, King Jesus. And he, this morning, I want us to see three realities from our text, three realities from our text. And our text will focus on the advancement of the kingdom or advancing the kingdom. And here's the first point that I want us to see. I want us to see the triumph of God's king, the triumph of God's king. We see that in verses 1 through 8, and as well as verse 13, the latter part of verse 13, and into verse 14. And here's what we see as we look at this passage of Scripture. Here's what we see, Number number one thing. We see the nations subjugated. We see the nations subjugated. Look at all of the nations here in, in these verses that are appealed to, that are talked about, that, are, that, that David, by God's, by God's empowerment, uh, is able to subjugate, is able to subdue, right? In verse 1, the Philistines. In verse 2, the Moabites. In verses 3 and 4, king of to- Zobah, right, Toy. Uh, which was which was uh, uh, the kingdom of of the the Arameans, right, which encompassed Damascus and was northeast of the nation of Israel, and then we see and and they did that willingly because of God's uh, work and in Toy and and the king and and his family, but then over the Syrians in verses five through eight in verse thirteen again very similar region north of Damascus in the upper region of of Israel it would be actually would take. Part, It would be what we now know today as modern-day Lebanon and and southern part of Syria. We know that this would have been their kingdom that David ultimately struck them and ruled and reigned over. And then in verse 14, there's one other tribe that is, or one other nation that is mentioned in this area, and that is the Edomites so in the southeast of the nation of Israel. But think about, think about all of these nations. These are the nations that had persecuted and had caused issues and problems through the, throughout history. Uh, some of these for, for a very long time, the Moabites, for example, and the Ammonites and, and others uh, had, had caused great consternation in the, throughout Israel's um, uh, history, uh, persecuting them, uh, harming them, hurting them the amalekites too are mentioned and and the 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 uh, the amalek and the amalekites here would have would have uh, were were ultimately the ones that god told king saul to destroy he didn't and we know if if you've read the scriptures you know the rest of that story it didn't end well for him which leads to david's rise to power but you say well that's great but i want to point something else out to you that maybe you haven't thought about you see as david conquers we see we see a list of nations and we're like okay that's great right and well, they, they advanced they 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 had uh, their great uh, they had their their uh, their their movements were were stunted or subjugated right they they were no longer able to rule themselves but in saying so for us in the western world right this is a, this is a, okay these nations they got beaten down but you understand that to a, a Jew reading this at this time, they would have understood that there's more going on here than just the subjugation of these nations. And this is what I want to point you to. I want you to see that in subjugating these nations, ultimately what God is doing is he's pointing forward in time because he is in David, he is literally in destroying these nations or putting them under the rule of of God, the God of Israel. What he is doing is he is also putting down the gods of the nations. He is not only destroying the nations and putting down the nations themselves, but in doing this, he is also subjugating and destroying the gods of the nations. So for instance, the god of the Philistines was the god Dagon. According to ancient mythology, Dagon was, a, was, a, was some kind of a fish, a merman, of if you will. And he, he was, he was the, the chief god upon which the Philistines worshipped. And so in Israel's crushing and bringing the Philistines underneath the rule of Yahweh, Yahweh was declaring, David was declaring Yahweh's, not just his dominance, but his right as the one true god to be worshipped, Chemosh. The god of Moab and Ammon was called, the uh, mean, meaning destroyer or subduer, required human sacrifice as a part of his worship. Same with the Ammonites, uh, other god, Milcom or Molech, uh, who required child sacrifice to be burned in the fire. The gods of the Syrians and the Arameans, right? The, the, they worshiped the storm god, Hadad, or known also as Baal or, or, or Teshub. And this is associated with rain, thunder, lightning, fertility, and war. And they were ultimately not worshiping the God of Israel. The Amaleks, uh, Amalekites and the Edomites really don't know much about them other than the fact that in Second Chronicles 25, 14 and 15, we are told. We are told this, now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah, and he sent his prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from from my hand? And so in God's ultimate giving these nations over, he was subjugating not just the nations, but he was also subjugating the gods that these nations, these false gods that these nations worship. And there is significance in emphasizing this. And why, why, why even emphasize this? Well, the reason I emphasize it is because that's what David does. And You say, well, where does David emphasize that in the text? Well, in this text, he does not But if you flip over to Psalm chapter 2, this was the same time that Psalm 2 was written. And listen to what David writes in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen or the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them or hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and vex them or terrify them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. Ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. David wrote this psalm in this around this same time. David fully understands and instructs the nations what's happening. That God is declaring his absolute right of worship. That the gods of the nations are false gods and they are not worthy to be worshiped. But he alone, as the God of of all heaven and earth, has the right, the absolute, unsurpassing right to be worshiped. He is the one who is absolutely to be praised and glorified and worshiped because he alone is the Lord Almighty. We say, well, now, but, but now, wait a minute, Pastor. Psalm 2 points us to Jesus. Most certainly, it ultimately does. It ultimately does. The, the, the remote fulfillment, the long vision fulfillment is Jesus. It ultimately is pointing us to the Messiah, the one who has ultimately done his work at the, in, his, in the cross and his resurrection. But in the, in, the, in the specific time that David was writing this, the proximate fulfillment is this passage. It is David. David has fulfilled this passage in the short term, in the, in the proximate, the immediate fulfillment. David has fulfilled this by God bringing the nations and subjugating them. But yes, ultimately it does point us to Christ. And yes, ultimately it does point us to the, to the remote fulfillment, the, the, the long-term fulfillment, which is that Jesus Christ will ultimately subjugate the nations. He will ultimately destroy the nations and bring them under his feet once and for all. And there is a greater spiritual work that is at work here, right? And, and I, think, I think we have to see this, that that, that it is sometimes stated that, that warfare in the Old Testament is physical, whereas warfare in the New Testament, well, that's that's sort of just spiritual. But the thing that I think we often forget about is that warfare in the Old Testament was not just a physical reality. It was a physical reality, but it was also very much a spiritual reality as well. God was subjugating not just the nations, but showing their gods to be worthless and showing them that they are not worthy to be worshipped because they're not true gods. They're not, there are no gods at all. They are, they are demons that are being worshipped as gods. And in reality is we can't miss the reality that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 6 which is this that there are still spiritual forces at work though they have been defeated in Christ in Colossians chapter 2 as we'll see in just a few moments but there are still there is still cosmic warfare that occurs in the spiritual realm and is behind the 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 movement even among the nations in this day now, again, ultimately Christ has put them down. Ultimately, they are, they are being revealed for what they are. But Christ, ultimately, his victory will not be ultimately seen his, until his second coming. We know it. We feel it. We experience it. We know it to be fact. But we await that day in which the nations themselves and the, the gods that they worship are ultimately, once and for all, put down underneath the feet of Christ. And so God tells us, over and over and over again, that there's more than meets the eye, right? You grew up in the 80s, Transformers, right? More than meets it. Well, there's, that's true, right? There's more than meets the eye. There's more than meets the eye going on here. And in our passage, because of Psalm 2, we see David's conquest representing a greater, more specific reality, and that is ultimately, it does point us to Christ. Ultimately, it does show us Jesus. Ultimately, it does point us to King Jesus and say, he is the ultimate fulfillment of this. He has already put the nations down, though though it's not been fully yet seen, right? The already but not yet, right? The the already reality but not yet quite revealed for us, right? The already but not yet, right? Christ is already conquered, but we're still waiting for that ultimate day in which Christ puts down all the nations once and for all. And so we see this reality, God conquering the nations and their so-called gods, something that he ultimately accomplishes through Christ. And I want to point you to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13-15. to Paul makes this exact point. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it excuse me, having nailed it to the cross. Now listen to how Paul ends this. Having disarmed principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In what? In the cross. Christ has ultimately conquered through the cross of Christ, his cross, through his finished work upon the cross and his resurrection. Christ has put down the gods of the nations and the demons who are worshipped as gods but are not gods. And so we see God's glorious work, David acting on the Lord's behalf in judgment, God covenanting in his promises, God covenanting through his promises of being fulfilled through his anointed king, unlike the nations who have gone to their gods that are ultimately not able to save them, God has revealed that he and he alone is able to save his people. And he shows this in David, because who does David go to? Well, he's not like He's not like the Arameans, or not the Arameans, he's not like, uh, like Hadadezer, and he's, he goes to the Syrians and says, hey, come help us, We're trying to rely on political allies, trying to rely on, on politics and, and, and treaties and, and all kinds of things. Instead, David says, Lord, you're our help, I trust in you, and God blesses his favor, blesses him with favor in putting the nations down once and for all. And so in this, David really is a type of Christ because David delivers by the Lord's power from their physical, delivers Israel from their physical enemies. But ultimately, it does point us to David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who is the true king of Israel, who is worthy of our worship. And we look at this and we say, but there's still something about this text that bothers us. You say, well, I don't have any problem with anything that you've said so far, right? I mean, I don't know if I believe in all that 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 stuff, but 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 okay, I I I can see where, where maybe they would they would say that. But what about this thing where David like takes a measuring tape or a cord and he like measures off, and he basically slaughters two thirds of the Syrian army that he captures? Like that that just doesn't seem right. To which I would simply remind you and I. Of this, that one, these nations were not twiddling their thumbs, being really super nice guy, and out of the blue, here comes David, a big omini, and takes care of them. These were wicked and vile people, sacrificing their children and, and slaves to their gods and the gods of their nations. These were people who were very vile and wicked in their activities. These were people who participated in the vilest and most wicked activities. So one, let me say this, that there is no such thing as these nations were just out there just sort of willy-nilly going through life, like trying to live their best life now, and David comes along and starts killing them. They're very wicked, very evil. But even more than that, let me remind you that God has commanded Israel to subdue the nations. And that's what David is doing. I would say third, no other nation did this. And so in David, in David sparing a third of the army and in hamstringing and leaving a hundred chariots, David is actually being very gracious. He didn't have to, but he chose to out of out of mercy. And we see ultimately that we're reminded of this, I think. We're reminded that the 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 nations here serve as a reminder to those of us today who have not bowed the knee to Christ. You say, well, what do you mean? We see, friend, there's coming a day in which the sovereign God of all the nations will subdue all nations. And when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. That means that every human institution will bow the knee. Governments and businesses, churches, schools, you name it, they're all subject to God's authority. Every human being will be subjected to God's authority. And friend, let me me just be honest with you. Christ commands you this day to bow the knee to him in faith. He commands you this day because on the day in which he returns, you will not find grace. You will find wrath. Wrath for your sin, wrath for your rebellion, wrath for your wickedness. Only in Christ and taking refuge in Christ can you find that God's wrath has been changed to love for you. And so he calls you this day, if you hear his voice, to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, trusting and looking to the work of Christ and not your own self-righteous good works. Secondly, though, there's a second reality here. I want to point us to in verses 9 through 13, and it's simply this. The exaltation of God's king. The exaltation of God's king. Notice the the honor that's given to David. And it's very interesting. It's come from a very interesting place. Toy, or some of your translations may have two, T-O-U, right? Toy or two, right? King of Hamath. And so we know that this man saw everything else going on around him, and he said, mm, David is going to take it all. And he bowed his knee to King David quickly, giving honor to David, offering God his, his treasures, gave him great amounts of treasures. But in the nation's plunder, notice this too. The nations are plundered in David's destruction of them, in David's subjugation of them. The nations pay tribute to David whether willingly or unwillingly. But notice this. How is the temple built? How is the temple built? Well, later on in Second Chronicles, and in Kings and Chronicles, you actually find out that it was from the nations that have been plundered. The Lord blessed and built his temple. You say, well, now wait a minute. What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it has everything to do with what God has proclaimed to us in Christ. You see, we still think, I think today, we still think of, of, of this is not really happening. And in the sense that we pick up arms and obviously we're, you know, we're not living under a theocracy, right? The United States is not a theocracy, right? We're not living in a theocracy. We're not the, we're not the people of God, right? But we, the nation, of, right, we haven't taken Israel's place. But I, I will say this, but God still plunders the nations. You say, what? What do you mean God still plunders the nations when the book of Revelation the entire book is about the victory of Christ it is about our warrior king who ultimately as the king subjugates the nations and there's an interesting several times in the book of Revelation there's an interesting little tidbit of information John says and I looked and behold a massive sea of people from every tribe, tongue, and people. You see, God still plunders the nations through the gospel. God plunders his people from among the nations that he is sovereignly bought by the blood of Christ. He, through the preaching of the gospel, plunders the nations. And the nations will pay tribute one day to to this king and to his kingdom. The gospel subjugates nations. The gospel plunders nations. The gospel subjugates nations. And the temple that God now builds is not a physical temple. It's not a temple made with hands, we're told. But it's us who are in Christ. We are the temple of God being built. And God and David in this sense and his exaltation points us ultimately to Christ, because it is because of the peace and the the opportunity for the temple is given for David to build the temple, through the plundered wealth of the nations the temple is ultimately being able to, is able to be built, and because of Christ and the plundering that he has done right in the strong man of the strong man and among the nations Christ has built himself and is building himself a temple. But a third reality for us, and that's simply this, the blessing of God's king. It's found in verses 15 through 18. Now, notice real quick here in the text, in verses 15 through 18, there are two things that David does, and it says he does well. One is he, he produces righteousness, and the second thing that he does is he produces justice. You say, well, he's doing that for his, for, for his people. Yes, yes, obviously he is. But in subjugating the nations, he's also doing that among the nations. He is bringing the nations underneath the authority and the rule of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the one that is doing this. As a matter of fact, in verses 15 through 18, listen to what the text says here. It says, and David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice to all his people. Now notice, it doesn't say just the people of Israel. Though certainly, I guess you could say that his people could maybe refer to that. But what has God just done through David? He has subjugated the nations surrounding Israel. And so David's kingdom spreads far and wide among the nations. And David produces where there was once injustice, David produces justice. Where there was once unrighteousness, David now produces righteousness in his rule and his reign. You see righteousness and judgment was demonstrated through the subjugation of Moab and the nations no more were children sacrificed to their demon gods no more were slaves sacrificed to their pagan gods no more were the poor subjugated no more were people no more were people cruelly and harshly treated but rather god through his king serves justly and righteously Though certainly David was not a perfect king, as we're going to see here in just, a, just the next couple of chapters, David certainly acted judiciously, and God justly rules through David. I think Calvin, John Calvin, has said very clearly the stringency with which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be the last judgment of God since they had abused his long patience and mocked him. You see, God's grace exercised toward the nations is twofold. One, in subjugating them. And two, commanding them to bow the knee and to serve him. And that's exactly what happens. David is a king of justice and of righteousness. We need to be people who love justice and righteousness. We need to be people who love justice and righteousness. And then he does go on to say how he justly and righteously used his rule in Israel he appoints military leaders right in Joab he appoints ecclesiastical like religious leaders right and then he appoints civil leaders or civil officers and in doing this David wants justice and righteousness to rule and reign throughout his kingdom so I think that should we ever ask the question, where is Jesus? I think it's pretty clear where Jesus is in our text. Jesus Christ is ultimately the greater king who was promised to David back in chapter 7 through the covenant, David's covenant, that God makes with, with, Israel, with David and the Davidic covenant. And so Jesus Christ is the ultimate king who was promised to David. But Jesus Christ, just e- even more so than David, is the righteous warrior king who decisively on the cross and through his resurrection defeated Satan, sin, death, and the grave. God, Jesus Jesus Christ, our Savior, the second person of the Godhead, is the warrior king who has decisively defeated the principalities and the powers through his work on the cross and through the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the warrior king who takes the spoils of war from among his enemies and he makes his enemies public spectacles. Jesus is the warrior king who is building a temple, as I've said, from among the nations. Jesus is the warrior king whose territory territory has conquered well beyond the Middle East. Christ has a kingdom that is made up of the nations. Those whom he has plundered from every tribe and tongue and people. It's not just a Middle Eastern national theocracy it is now a worldwide movement. And ultimately, then, Revelation points us to the reality that one day Jesus is going to return. And in that return, the nations will once and for all be subjugated to the reign and the rule of Christ. So in saying all that, right, He was, like, oh, that's great. But how do we apply that? Well, let me apply it, I think, in a couple different ways for us, and then we'll be done. One, I think one application is this. Jesus Christ, right, taught of the continual growth of the kingdom of God. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, listen to what it says here. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable, he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. By the way, it's the only place in all scripture where the kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven. Which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. We don't serve a God who can lose. We don't serve a God who has lost. No matter how much it appears the darkness is encroaching, no matter how much it appears that Darth Vader is our current ruler, No matter how much we, no matter how, what it appears to be, right? No matter what it appears to be, God in all of his glory, God in all of his praise is winning and is going to win. He is going to win, not just in the U.S., but in the nations, in Kenya, in South Africa. In all sorts of other places, God is going to win. In Sweden, God is going to win. In Canada and around the world, through the gospel, God is going to win. Because it feels as if Satan is exercising great rule now. It appears and feels often as we look at the nations and we hear the cry of the nations and of injustice and unrighteousness. It feels as if darkness wins, but as we look across the land, my brothers and sisters, let us not forget that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And Jesus told us that the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." The gospel is undefeatable. It doesn't matter how much it appears Satan is exercising rule and reign on the earth. It doesn't, appear, it doesn't matter how much we appear that, that, that we are experiencing his wrath. Christ in the cross has defeated Satan. Though he still struggles in defeat against God and God's people, Right? Although it sometimes feels as if the as if the 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 work of the the, the work of Satan manifestly grows day by day listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6:10 through 20 for though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, let me say this: this this passage is not meant to serve as our national foreign part of policy, but it certainly does give us the hope that as God's people around the nations—white, black, Hispanic—it doesn't matter what color or ethnicity we are—we are, if we are in Christ, we are God's plunder from among the nations. And our hope ultimately does not rest in what it seems like Satan is doing, but our hope is ultimately resting in Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your truth and your word this morning. We pray that, that our, our, hearts are, are, um, our hearts are often far from where they need to be. And so, God, we confess this to you, and we would ask for your help and your aid, O God. We would ask for your wisdom and your grace. Season our hearts, God. Season our minds to the gospel, that we would be a people of salt and light in the world, proclaiming the gospel among the nations, knowing that our God is undefeatable and the gospel cannot be stopped. No matter how it may seem that Satan is encouraging rebelliousness and the forces of darkness may seem to be encouraging rebelliousness and sin among the nations father we thank you that your gospel is unstoppable and you O god are unstoppable so help us to preach the gospel help us to be faithful to preach king jesus and we pray that you would do as you have promised to subjugate the nations to the gospel preaching we pray in jesus name